Well, I'm happy to be here today. What a wonderful day this is. Sunday, it's March, just another day. But every day is the best day if you look at it that way. I'm going to talk about getting inside. How do we find our way in? And I wanted it to be a bit cryptic because I thought it would be more interesting than just say blah, blah, blah. So it's about finding your way into yourself, into your mind, into your consciousness. One of the things I found with my sense doors is they always point out my sight and my hearing and my smell and my taste and my touch. It's always about what's out there. And that allows me to survive, avoid possible death or destruction. But how about wanting to get inside? How do you do that? And when somebody said meditation to me the first time, I, I didn't really know what they meant or how to go about doing it. And then I started to listen to people talk about it. I started to read books about it and get an intellectual understanding of what it might be like to meditate. And I imagine myself sitting cross-legged on the floor and leaving my body and floating around looking at all sorts of wonderful things. Well, that wasn't the kind of meditation I ended up doing, if that even is a kind of meditation. But I said to myself, okay, how can I get in? You know, the door seems to be locked for some reason. And, and how can I get in and, and use what I see inside or feel inside or intuit inside to make my life better? So the first thing I did was sit down. I sat down cross-legged, and I just sat there. I didn't have a technique. I just wanted to feel what it was like to sit down and prepare to look inside. In the same way you might go to a movie theater and find your seat and sort of relax into it and get ready for the movie to start. So I was sitting quietly on the floor and not doing anything at all and realized that my mind was racing from thought to thought. And it wasn't any logical order. It was simply this thought and that thought and this thought and that thought. And one didn't even seem to lead to the next one. It's very arbitrary. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I can stop my thinking. But then how could I stop my thinking if I'm the one that's thinking? You know, it's like the eye looking at itself and the ear hearing itself and the nose smelling itself. You know, it, it, there's a function that self has. And one of the main functions of self is to think. And just because you go to sleep at night doesn't mean you stop thinking. And I have found about 3.30 in the morning, whoa, it's a burst of energy, thought after thought. And then you try to get back to sleep, and you have more thoughts about getting back to sleep. And finally, you just sort of fall unconscious for a couple hours, and the sun comes up, and you start your day, and you continue to think, but at a different level, in a different way. So 
Buddhism has basically two forms of meditation. We have tranquility meditation, which according to me leads to compassion. And we have insight meditation, which according to me leads to wisdom. So I've got to qualify it as according to me, because everybody who talks about this has a different take on it, a different perspective. So my perspective is, I'm going to start with compassion. How do I raise my compassion to accept and embrace all the stuff in the world that is really difficult to embrace? Really difficult sometimes to be kind, because you know it could be different, and you know it should be different, but it's not. It's just the way it is. And you watch the news, and you listen to people talk, and you go on Facebook, and you go, my, my, what's wrong with the world? Well, actually, the world has always been this way. And it could have been worse, you know, a thousand or two thousand years ago. You didn't have that much to think about, but you sure had a lot of stuff to do just to survive. And so here we are in the 21st century and sitting on the floor and taking our position, getting comfortable. We're getting ready to go inside. So there are 40 different techniques in tranquility meditation to allow you to go to a place of extreme concentration. And that's what I started with, extreme concentration. I used breath counting as a technique to go and follow the breath because, to be honest with you, watching your breath or feeling your breath for a half hour is probably one of the most boring things <laughs> you're ever going to do. So I added a, a, a little fun. I counted. Well, counting one to ten and ten to one for a half hour isn't very exciting either. But the exciting part is to watch how your mind keeps rejecting the counting. It gets bored. It doesn't want to do it anymore. It wants to start multiplying and subtracting just because it's more exciting. And you say, no, no, we're just going to count the sensation of breath, 1 to 10, 10 to 1. And you sit and you count and you count. And all of a sudden, there's a little change of consciousness where you start to feel a little different about the breath and about your counting and even about yourself. And now what happens is the past thoughts that we've had our whole life start to fall away and not be important and not even be accessible. And all the future thoughts about what's going to happen and how it's going to happen starts to slow down and starts to fall away and we abandon them. And we abandon the past and we abandon the future so we can be here now, according to Ramdas. Cool. So what's it feel like to be here now? Well, we have sensation, you know, and we have thinking. And that's pretty much it. Sometimes there's a couple concepts connected with that. But it's not a, a big thing. It's not an extravagant thing. It's just sort of happening. And everything starts to settle, like a glass of muddy water that's put on the counter. And the mud starts to settle to the bottom of the glass. 
and you start to have this sense of clarity about the present moment experience of your life. And you're going deeper and deeper, and there's five aspects of getting deep, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. And those are different concepts that are used in Samatha meditation or tranquility meditation to sort of identify what level you're at in your focus and your concentration. And when you get to the deepest part of your concentration, you only have one characteristic left, and that is called equanimity, perfect balance of mind. And there you are sitting on the floor with the perfect balance of mind, and you start to feel self, ego, personality. It starts to dissolve. It starts to go away. And sometimes there's fear because what happens if it doesn't come back? Who will I be then? It always seems to come back. But sometimes just a little lighter, a little more transparent, a little less you, and a little more them. Wow, okay, so now we're getting to this place where compassion becomes accessible to you and kindness becomes accessible to you because you realize that you don't exist in the way you always thought you did. There's no personal event that you could call you. It's very much a process. And it's interconnected and it's interdependent with all things all the time. And what you start to see is that they are you and you are them. And now if that person is in a situation that causes them to suffer and feel uncomfortable, there's a part of you now that suffers and feels uncomfortable because you're not separate any longer. You spent years in school being separate, having all these concepts and ideas. You spent years in a profession, perhaps, where you were separate and identified as something in particular. You know, you were the, you were the principal, you were the teacher, you were the student, you were the CEO, you were the president. You needed to be somebody, and in order to be somebody, you needed to be separate, and you needed to identify with that. And now all that identification has fallen away. And there you sit, connected, at home, with the universe. And this compassionate heart arises and gets stronger and stronger. Okay, that's one wing of the Buddhist bird. The second wing is insight into the true nature of reality. Unfortunately, when you go to that place and experience the true nature of reality, you will never be the same again. But don't let that scare you because we're never the same again anyway, moment to moment. We think we are. We have a sense of self that travels throughout the whole day, throughout the week, throughout the month. But that sense of self denies the fact that everything is in a constant state of flux and change. That 
yesterday we had a good hair day, and today we didn't, but we still had hair, and then we don't. <laughs> and you go, wow, is that me? Yes, that's you and all your many manifestations. But the wisdom you're trying to seek in understanding the true nature of the world is all things change all the time. All things are ultimately unsatisfactory. And I don't exist the way I think I do. Now, if you can wrap your mind around that, what you start to see is that because you're locked into a person or personality, because you're locked into an idea of how you're supposed to be or how you could be, you are limited. You will never be free. You are imprisoned by the concepts of who you are and who people want you to be. And I run across that all the time, and maybe Reverend Bonnie does too, when you are part of the clergy and people expect you to be a certain way and they expect you to speak in a skillful, wholesome way. And sometimes you just want to sort of get down to brass tacks and tell the world what you really think about it. <laughs> we have an applause over there. <laughs> so there you go. So that would ruin everybody's idea of how you're supposed to be. So you have to be really careful all the time when you're supposed to be somebody. But when you start to get free, when you start to see that you are always in a constant state of flux, and what that means is you always have the potential of being something else every moment of your life. You're not stuck. You're never going to be the same very long. And how nice is that? And I know there are moments when we want to be the same because it just seems wonderful and you seem so smart and rested and you took your vitamins and just everything is falling into place. Enjoy it because it's not going to be there very long. And when things aren't as good as it's supposed to be, and you have a little more suffering and discomfort than you wish you had, well, take an ibuprofen. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that's not going to last very long either. You only have discomfort for a certain amount of time. And then there's only two ways it's going to go. The first way it's going to go is it's going to get better. The second way it's going to go is you will die. <laughs> So most of us get better. It's a positive thought to have. Now this idea of everything being ultimately unsatisfactory, it is, believe me, I've studied it, I've seen it, I've lived it. Even the good stuff changes. Everything has an expiration date. It does. I, I had that insight just a few months ago that everything has an expiration date. And no matter how good it is, no how bad it is, it too will go away. So, can we deal with the suffering? Can we understand that it's just the natural order of things? That the whole world is there and we are suffering because we see the suffering. We have been taught to suffer. It is a concept Suffering does not exist in the real world. Suffering exists in the way you experience the real world. And if you want to 
end the suffering. You have to change the way you experience the world. And meditation is a wonderful vehicle to do that. And then we have, I'm not who I think I am. I don't even exist the way I think I do. And yet when I wake up in the morning, it's me. And I look in the mirror and it's me. You know, and I get in my car and it's me. And no matter where I go, there I am. And I'm going, wow, okay. How do I, how do I lighten that burden of being me? Because it can be a burden. It's hard after 71 years of existence, I carry a lot of me around all the time. Baggage, it's there. And the older I get, the more I think about the baggage that I can't let go of. And all the things I wish I had packed differently in the baggage and didn't because I was young and foolish and now I'm old and wise and now I have to think about that all the time. Oh man, so if I can just look at myself in a different way and say, you know what, I, at every moment in my life I did the best I could. And ultimately there was nobody there anyway. It was just a set of circumstances and the idea of me, mine, and I in a certain situation. And that's what happened. And the value of good or bad, skillful or unskillful, is arbitrary. You know, in the 70s, things were a lot different than they are now. And a lot of things were good and skillful in the 70s, which are frowned upon now. And you go, whoa, okay. So everything changes. Ultimately, everything becomes unsatisfactory. And look what I did. And look, there was nobody doing it. And I still think that I did it. And it hurts so much. And then you have this really weird thing come up when you find your spiritual path, when you find your calling. And it's called destination addiction. And you know what that is? That's when you're more concerned about where you're going than where you are. And if that's the case, you're never going to be happy right now because your happiness is always the next job, the next car, the next person, the next apartment. But it's not now. And you're going to be unhappy for the rest of your life if you suffer from that. So how do you get rid of the destination? Well, you get rid of the destination because the most important thing is the journey. It's what you're doing now to get there. It's not there because what you have in your mind when you finally get there will not be the thing. It's not going to be that because you projected it based on illusion, based on books, based on people talking to you about how great it's going to be to go to Sydney, Australia. And you're finally in Sydney, Australia. And what do you see? Buildings, cars, <laughs> asphalt, turnarounds. You know, okay. I could have seen that same stuff in Santa Monica. Yeah, I know. But you're in Sydney. Okay, so trying to get someplace, and then when you finally do, it never seems to be really as good as you had imagined. So we have this compassion, and now we have this wisdom, and we put those both together, and now we have the two wings of Buddhism, which allows us to be in the world in a much different way. 
and you're probably going to lose some friends along the way, and you're probably going to confuse some family members as well, because they're going to be thinking, what's wrong with this guy or gal? Why don't they see it the way I do? Why aren't they anything? Why do they insist on being nothing? <laughs> you know, and ultimately, nothing is probably the most truth you're ever going to experience. When you come to that place in your life and you say honestly to yourself, I don't know. Everything then becomes a possibility. Everything. Don't know. In Zen, don't know mind is the ideal. So why do you do it? Don't know. Why do you meditate? Don't know. But it doesn't mean you stop meditating. You just don't know why you're doing it. And everything is fine because the inner transformation is occurring, whether you know it or not. And when that inner transformation occurs, you only have one more thing you need to do. And that's practice the precepts, the five precepts, the 10 precepts, or the 227 precepts of a Theravada monk. And the five, 10, and 227 precepts are focused on what you say and what you do because you've already worked on what you think and what you don't think and what you know and what you don't know. And now you're living like a Buddha without being a Buddha. You know, it's really hard to be a Buddha. It takes many hundreds and thousands of lifetimes to finally achieve Buddhahood. But it only takes us a short while to be a little better than we used to be, a little more skillful and compassionate than we used to be, a little wiser in what we think, say, and do than we used to be. It's available to all of us right now, right now, as long as we don't know. We don't need the destination. There's no place to go. There's nobody to be. There's nothing to do. That's the weird part about enlightenment. You don't go any place to find enlightenment. You simply realize you're already there. Like if I wanted to be in Ventura today, I'd say, wow, I wish I was in Ventura. And then I look around and I go, hey, I am. How cool is that? <laughs> and that's like enlightenment. You know, I really want to be enlightened. I have that destination addiction. I can hardly wait because I know once I'm enlightened, everything will be just the way it's supposed to be. And we're already there. We made it, all of us. All we need to do today is to wake up to the fact that we're there. And all this meditation and all those precepts are designed to point us in that direction. Point us into the direction of we're already there. And now everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. But we don't stop because even though people are suffering and that's the way it's supposed to be, we can reduce or end that suffering of other people. So our work is not done when we become enlightened, when we have compassion and wisdom. Our work now focuses on the other, 
who just became us. And we can say to ourselves, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. How can I make it better? How can I help reduce suffering? How can I be of service? How can I practice even the smallest kindness, which is so much bigger than the best intention? How can I practice the smallest kindness? And so when we start to think again, it's very focused on, I am going to be of service. And that's a wonderful way to think about yourself in the world and the world itself. And it all started because you decided one day to sit down and find the way in. <laughs>